So I uh, was working on my taxes Monday because I like to be ahead of the game, um, knowing they were due Tuesday. And so Monday night, uh, I think it's like, I don't know, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, uh, e-filed through TurboTax. I was really proud of myself. Um, and uh, thank you. Um, you haven't heard the whole story yet. So I, uh, I e-file and, you know, and you put it in a box. I live in fear of an audit. Um, just because I'm not the world's most organized person and, and somewhere along the way, like the tax man, it's a scary reality. So I, I, you know, you put everything in the box and I'm printing all the emails that say you e-filed, yes, it's confirmed, we sent it in and I'm like, you know, printing all those. And then all of a sudden I get a text message of all things because I'd somehow opted into that saying that my, my state, uh, federal and state e-file both had been rejected. I'm like, that's why. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Like, what does that mean? So go look at the rejection thing. And on TurboTax, it says, well, because uh, you or one of your dependents, social security numbers have, have already been used. And so it kicks it out. And so I'm like, oh, that, well, I don't, what does that mean? So on Tuesday morning, I got up early and I called the IRS and wait, waited on the phone for a while. And then finally get somebody on the phone. And I said, hey, listen, uh, I e-filed last night. Then an hour later, I get this message. And um, error, whatever, and she goes, oh, no worries, it's, it happens all the time, somebody, when they were filling out their taxes, probably put a one instead of a two, and so somehow when it got run through, it, it took one of the social security numbers attached to you or your kids, and um, you just need a paper file, and then, you know, it'll just take a little while to work out, like, how long will it take to work out, she's like, well, it'll take, you know, well, a couple of weeks, unless it was you or your wife, and then it could take, you know, three to six months, and, and she's like, well, which was it? And I'm like, I don't know, TurboTax just, they didn't tell me who it was. And she goes, well, let me go check for you. I'll, I'll find out. I'll be right back. Ten minutes later, she comes back and gets on the phone and says, Mr. Whitesmith. I'm like, yeah. She goes, you need to go to identitytheft.gov and you need to start filling out, uh, kind of going through the steps. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, yeah. Um, so you, this is the paperwork you need to, to print out to file with your taxes today and then you need to go start kind of walking through the how-to uh, plan on that site. And then she goes, uh, is your wife there? Like, yeah, yeah, my wife. So I get hey, Tamara and put her on. And so the lady's talking to Tamara, and I can tell she's telling Tamara to do that. And I'm like, and Tamara's looking at me, and she's like, it's me. Like, it, it's me. And I'm like, really? Well, ask her if I still need to do that other stuff. <laughs> so Tamara, Tamara asks, and... Uh, and the lady's like, I can only talk to the person that I'm talking to. So I'm like, well, you know, can I talk to her? Can you talk to my husband again? So I get the phone back. I'm like, hey, I could hear what you were saying to my wife. Does that mean I don't need to do that? She goes, no, you definitely need to do that. And oh, by the way, um, you should probably pull credit reports on your, your four kids too. I was like, what? So anyways, um, so hung up. Uh, the phone on that and started to fill out a whole lot of paperwork. And it was, it was funny because, you know, I'm an intense personality, so sometimes I get mad at things. Um, but then there's also times where it just doesn't phase me. So I kind of, maybe I, I just expect that all of us at some point are going to have identity theft or something like that, um, or I don't know, um, whatever it is. But I kind of laughed it off, and it, and it kind of became a little bit of a joke for me. So as I was texting friends or emailing that day, and I was like, hey, I can't get to this today. I'm busy filling out paperwork. This happened to me. We'd start kind of bantering. And I'd say things like, you know, when you run into another Ken Weitzma someday, just remember I'm the good-looking one. And 
Um, and so I started thinking about multiple Ken Weitzmas out there. And, and, you know, there's this whole identity thing that comes in. All the forms were basically filling out paperwork to say that I am me and then um, trying to prove it because now I need a social security card and two other forms of ID and I got to go photocopy. It's like, so my face actually goes to my number and my name. And, you know, it's just kind of a weird thing trying to prove that you are who you are. Does that make sense? And I feel like that's a, a really interesting thing when it comes to Easter because I think we tend to take Jesus and there's a whole lot of different identities going on. I think year round, but I think it comes to a head at Easter. And we're all ostensibly gathering around because this is Easter Sunday, it's Resurrection Sunday, and there's this kind of, this, this message of Jesus as the Son of God or, or as the one who came back from the death, uh, from the dead, and, and that's at the center of it, but then there's a whole lot of other things about just kind of warm fuzzies or it's just a religious holiday or it's an opportunity for whatever it might be, and so... It's always been something that's bugged me, but it started bugging me again this, uh, this year that what are we really doing at Easter and what's the identity that we've got in our mind when we're thinking of who Jesus really is? And I, I began to feel like I wasn't alone in this when I saw this Jim Gaffigan clip and then I, I felt very vindicated, so I'll show that to you. Easter, that's a weird tradition. Easter, the day Jesus rose from the dead, what should we do? How about eggs? Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? All right, we'll hide him. I don't follow your logic. Don't worry, there's a bunny. Ridiculous. <laughs> so I love that phrase, I don't follow your logic. I, uh, two years ago, when I was still in my 30s, um, I, I did what my wife considers the infamous Easter sermon. And I'd, I'd, been to, I'd been to Ephesus that year. And it was really fascinating. In Ephesus, like you're, you're in this port city, ancient port city. And when you're studying the text about what happened when Paul came in, he came in, it says, and he was preaching the resurrection. And so all of the vendors that were selling little kind of souvenir uh, things, just like today. I mean, there's still souvenir shops as you go to Ephesus. And they were selling these little silver goddesses uh, of the goddess Artemis. And so as Paul's given this message of resurrection, all of a sudden it changes everything and ultimately upsets the economics of the city to such a degree that the whole town goes in an uproar, runs to the amphitheater that's still there, and, and begins to try to demand that this guy that's causing trouble kind of be sent out of the city. And, and when I was at Ephesus, I remember kind of connecting that. I'm like, strange, when Jesus came in for the Passover, uh, which is, again, that resurrection weekend, when he came in for the Passover, and it was all about the business and profit, and, and there was nothing of the sacred about it, he kind of did the same thing. He flipped these money tables and upset, literally upset the economics of the city. And so two years ago, I, I, just, I just got in this mood and came in and, um, and, and just was fixated on this reality. And it was really, I, I made the locus of my thinking about um, Jesus and Paul when they preached resurrection. The true identity uh, of things kind of causes this result. And instead, as a pastor, I, I feel like on Easter, I'm being asked to do a warm, pastel, fuzzy kind of message 
that allows for a lot of really good mother-in-law lunches after church. I don't know if you were here, maybe you remember that. Okay. I learned something uh, that Sunday that you, as a pastor, you never mention mother-in-law in any context um, from, from up front. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I learned a lot. But I still think that coming back at it, what, what I think we're wrestling with here is this idea that our culture wants to find the lowest common denominator of who Jesus is and then rally around that, but that that might be very different from the true identity of Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus is addressing a question, and he's kind of already addressed uh, another question about uh, his identity, and, and then he goes on and, and tackles this one. And it's, it's just coming off of him asking who people say he is. So in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says, um, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they all kind of replied, so that means there's a consensus out there. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And what's fascinating about this is that's still the, kind, the exact kind of answer we get today, right? In their day and age, uh, uh, John the Baptist and Elijah and, and this, these are, these are the great moral teachers of their day. These are the great historical figures that, that kind of were prophetic and led to change in society. And so when we talk about Jesus today in culture, oftentimes it's Jesus is like Gandhi. Um, he's, he's like a Socrates figure. Uh, he and the Buddha are, are very, very much in the same vein of being peace and nonviolent and showing us a different way. And so the kinds of answers we give today, I think are very much the kinds of answers that are coming back to Jesus as, as he's asking this question, what, what's the identity that other people uh, attribute to me? What do they ascribe to me? How are they branding me? So that was the answer. And then so he turns the question on his disciples. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. So from the very beginning in Jesus' ministry, you begin to see this pattern that um, the identity of Christ and that we begin to understand and get that right is of paramount importance. So what I wanna do is kind of pull us through here into three, three points, three main points um, of what we learn about God or what we know about God uh, as Christians. And the first one is simply this. For Christianity, we know God by knowing Christ. As Christians, we know God by knowing Christ. So turn to John chapter 14, if you would. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In John chapter 14, Jesus has kind of already just given uh, a famous passage talking about... Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by me. So he's really saying you want to get to the Father. You, you want to get to heaven. You want to know where you're going. You want to, to anchor yourself into ultimate reality. I'm what bridges that gap. I, I'm, the, I'm the way. I'm the bridge. Um, I'm the truth. There's nothing else that you can look for. You have to understand that you're going to find it here. And I'm the life. Um, this is where you're going to find your truest and fullest expression of life. He goes on a chapter later in John 15 to say, I came that you may have life and life to the full. 
If we look for life or source of life anywhere but Christ, we tend to find that it doesn't really work. It has this illusion of pleasure or this illusion of satisfying us. But, but ultimately, when we chase after those kinds of things, we find that it's a lot like trying to suck satisfaction out of dirt. It doesn't last and it doesn't satisfy. And so in this same passage, Jesus goes on and moves from Thomas to answering Philip. And Philip says, so you're the way, the truth, and the life. Well, then show us the Father. Just open it up and show us kind of the identity of God, a picture of God, a vision of God, so that we can know who God really is. We can see his character. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you, this is John 14, verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? And anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And the words that I say are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And what we find as Christians is that for, for Christianity, we know God by knowing Christ. My daughter, Mary Joy, my oldest, she's 12. Uh, we were driving in the car this week. And I like, I like the age she's at because um, I'm better with, with kids that can have an adult conversation than little kids. Um, because I can talk about things that interest me. And, and so it's kind of fun for me at this age. And she asks, what's the biggest religion in the world? And I said, Christianity is. She goes, what's number two? I said, Islam. And, and she says, you know, well, what's the difference? And, and so I started explaining to her, well, there's, there's a set of religions called the Abrahamic faiths. And so you have Christianity and Islam and Judaism, which all kind of have the same roots in the Old Testament with the Old Testament prophets and whatnot. And she says, well, then what's the difference? And I said, the difference is really Jesus. Um, the difference is Jesus. For Christians, the identity of Jesus is that he is the son of God and that through him we see a literal representation of who God is and we come to know God by knowing Jesus. And she said, well, do, do the other people not believe in Jesus? And, and so I kind of explained Judaism and then I explained Islam. I said, Islam believes in Jesus, but as just a prophet in that after Jesus came, the whole gospel um, got corrupted such that God spoke through Muhammad in the 700s and, and kind of reframed things and that Muhammad becomes the last and greatest prophet. But they, have, they do have Jesus. Jesus just means something different uh, within that. So we got to this whole conversation about the importance or the primacy of who Jesus Christ is for Christians. And what we find is we really... Come to know God by knowing Christ. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite illustrations, because it meant a lot to me when I was a newer Christian, was in his autobiography. He said that he, he got stuck at theism, meaning he had moved into the position of believing that there was a creator or, or something had to get the whole Big Bang and everything else started. And so he, he was kind of in that position of being a theist. But he said he, he couldn't see how um, we could ever know anything about that creator. And then his illustration was, because how could Hamlet ever really know anything about Shakespeare? Um, how, how does the created ever really know anything about the creator? And so Lewis goes on and says that he hung on to that metaphor, that, that governing analogy for quite some time. And then as he began to learn and think about it more and began to see kind of the gospel in a different light, it all of a sudden occurred to him that's why Jesus is so important because he says that's what actually bridges the gap. It's the way, the truth, and life. He says, there's one way 
that Hamlet can know Shakespeare. And that's if Shakespeare writes himself into the play of Hamlet so that Hamlet can interact with the character Shakespeare that, that is in every way the representation of Shakespeare outside of the play. And what we come to find is that's exactly what the gospel and what Jesus says was going on with the Son coming that we might know the Father. That God literally wrote himself into the story that, that we could see, we could touch, we could understand what love and sacrifice look like um, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the first one is just simply Christianity. We know God by knowing Christ. The second one is this. For Christianity, we understand suffering and redemption through the crucifixion and resurrection. For Christianity, we understand suffering and redemption through the cru uh, crucifixion and then ultimately the resurrection. It's interesting, every religion or even a system of belief, even if it's a non-kind of religious system of belief, has to deal or, or tries to deal with the problem of suffering. It's the existential question. It's this paramount question uh, with regard to suffering in the world and how do you account for it and how do you understand it. Buddhism, I was explaining to my daughter when we were driving, is a framework for dealing with suffering. The Buddha left the enclave, kind of the protection that he had, and then came face to face with suffering and had to, to deal with this, come, come up with an answer. And in early Buddhism, it was about killing desire so that desire wouldn't be frustrated. Um, that in some sense, accepting uh, suffering or, or killing the desire changed, changed the framework for how we see that. And so almost sitting into that, if you will. Uh, for Christianity... We see the answer with the cross, but not just the cross, the cross and then the empty tomb or the resurrection. Let me read uh, out of Romans for you, Romans chapter 5, if you want to follow along. Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And hope does not disappoint us. Um, Acts, uh, I'll just read it to you real quick. But Acts 23.6 is a fascinating thing where Paul is before the Sanhedrin, uh, before the Sanhedrin, and it says this: Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, which is kind of a form of religious liberalism, and that others were Pharisees that believed kind of literally into the Scriptures and the Holy Text, uh, he called out to them and he said, "My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead." And when he said this, a dispute broke out. Uh, between the two groups to such a degree that they were worried um, that Paul would be harmed. So Paul talks here, he talks in 1 Corinthians 15. The letter of 1 Corinthians is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is kind of giving an oral tradition mantra that, that many scholars believe goes back to 10, 15 years after Jesus' death. Kind of the earliest form of, of kind of uh, oral tradition or unwritten code that the Christians live by. And it says that Jesus died and that on the third day he, he rose. And it kind of goes through this mantra. And then Paul says, if this didn't happen, literally happen, if this isn't the true identity of Jesus, 
then we're the most pitied or to be the most pitied of all people. Why? Because then the way we respond to suffering ends up being empty and void. That instead of finding um, our life by following Christ and giving up the chasing of uh, eat, drink, and be merry, instead by leaning into this, if we find out it's not true, then the thing that was going to going to promise the balancing of the equations, the thing that gave it the, the, the hope or kind of the, the inner workings, that's just hollow. And so Paul says we're to be pitied. We're fools. And so for Paul, the, the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the thing that solves the equation of life being messy and God being mysterious. You see, life is messier than what we think it should be. We experience this all the time. And just when we get our stride back and we deal with the last hiccup, then we get hit again and again. And sometimes we get hit so fast that we just lose heart altogether. But no matter who you are, life is, is messier than we think it should be. And, and when we look to God for answers, we find that God's a touch more or a lot more mysterious than we feel he ought to be. And so we live in this tension. And faith is literally um, nothing more than sitting in, waiting in, living in that tension, that paradox. That's what walking by, by faith and not by sight means, is that we don't have the full answer or experience the full resolution to this tension yet. But the resurrection is the thing that we look to and say, our hope is grounded. Death has lost its sting because we can see uh, the person in the work of Jesus Christ, both in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So ultimately for Christians, we understand suffering and redemption through the crucifixion and resurrection. When I was a college pastor um, down in California, we, we used to take trips. This is in the 90s, so this is maybe 98, 98 and 99. We would take trips up to San Francisco of these Christian college students and it was a real kind of eye-opener. They're in Orange County or is, is Biola Orange County or is that L.A. or it's L.A.? It's like 10 miles on the L.A. side of, I don't know. Um, so it's L.A., but they, they all acted like Orange County. <laughs> There's a difference. Um, so it's all these college students, but we're going up to San Francisco. And they're, you know, 18 to 22. Uh, some of them or a lot of them have grown up in Christian homes. And we get plopped into this urban context uh, dealing with HIV AIDS, which in the late 90s was a much newer thing for a lot of these Christian students. And we're dealing with homeless people that may or may not be HIV AIDS positive and sleeping literally um, where they sleep in, in the shelter and in the home and interacting with them. And so we did that for two years. And the second year, we spent a good bit of time living at the home of a guy by the name of Dieter Zander. And Dieter Zander was in the early 90s a guy that had exploded a church down in the L.A. area uh, with a focus on Gen Xers. He's a charismatic, dynamic leader. I mean, just one of those uh, people that everyone's drawn to. And because of that, Willow Creek in Chicago hired him in to kind of come and help them reach Gen Xers. And so he started something at Willow Creek, and that blew up. But then he and his wife began to feel like we don't want to just um, be this attraction for these Gen Xers we really want to go deep and we want to go deep with kind of needy people. Um, 
or people that are overlooked, uh, kind of the left out people or the overlooked people. So they moved from Chicago to San Francisco, brought their little kids and plopped right in the middle um, uh, by Golden Gate Park. Uh, and every day he would go because he was a musician and talk to the people that were doing drum, African drum lines right by the tree where Janis Joplin used to always sit and sing. Um, and, and, you know, He's clean cut, so they immediately wonder, why is this clean cut guy, probably a narc, what's he doing? But, but every day he would go and just try to build relationships. And so we went and stayed with Dieter Zander and his family. And in the mornings, he would take his son to school and he'd, he'd ask me to hop in the car with him because he knew I was a pastor and younger. And, and it gave us about 45 minutes driving in traffic in San Francisco just for him to kind of pour into me. And it was a rich and meaningful time. And that's the last I ever heard of Dieter Zander until this week. So about four or five days ago, I stumbled across this article from the Marin County News. And it turns out that when um, Dieter Zander was 46, uh, he had a stroke. So I'll just read right out of this article. It's talking about uh, how successful he was, and it says this. Then he had a stroke, a bad one. And when he awoke from uh, a coma six days later, Zander realized that he would never be on stage again. He couldn't speak, let alone sing. His right hand was too crippled to play piano. His brain felt foreign, and he struggled to stay focused and remember. And so as he kind of heals, he ends up getting a job um, that he has now. uh, It says he still has this job in the the back of Trader Joe's unpacking and and stacking the shelves uh, at the Trader Joe's. And so that's what he was doing for a living. And then someone gave him a camera. And so you've got this guy that, that obviously has a lot of depth and meaning and has experienced all these different things. And he begins to use, it was an artist uh, utilizing his body that way before. And he begins to translate that differently by, by way of photography using this camera. And so the, the article had a whole bunch of pictures, but I've grabbed three of them to show you. But this is Dieter Zander. The hat says Grace, um, just a self-portrait. Most of them, or a lot of them, are self-portraits. Uh, the next one with cellophane over his face and mouth is just that sense of isolation, being trapped. Um, I think it's profound. Um, I pretend like I'm an art, art critic. Um, if you can't see it, this is probably my favorite of the pictures, but... It's, it's Dieter Zander, now age 54. It's, it's a handicap placard that's hanging around his neck. And so he began to do this photography and self-published, no, no book deal, no big anything. He, uh, he grabbed a friend because it says that he lost all his friends. He said that the people that knew him had a harder time dealing with the loss of his identity than he did. And if you can imagine how difficult that would be to go through. But he kind of put a little book out. And the name of the book and has kind of become his mantra for life is this. It's Stroke of Grace. Stroke of Grace. And he says this. Um, it used to be that God was my boss. God is my friend now, he says with a halting voice. Finally able to talk after years of therapy and practice. And God says, Dieter, um, you are not going to work. Now we play. And I find that fascinating that when we get, when we really get out of 
the show or when we really get out of the limelight, when we really get out of the distractions, you take a man like this and you break him. And what he begins to really realize is that somehow, like Romans 5, in this I can still find grace. In this suffering, I can still find hope. And so that ultimately the true identity, not what we make of Christ, but the true identity of Jesus Christ for Christians is how we understand suffering and redemption ultimately through the crucifixion and resurrection. So point number three is this. For Christianity, we understand God by joining in the life of Christ. For Christianity, we understand God by joining in the life of Christ. John 20, 21, it's a fascinating thing. The tomb is empty. It's, it's Easter morning. And so we see that in uh, all of this chapter um, of, of John. So John chapter 20, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said this, Peace be with you. And after he said that, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then again, Jesus says, peace be with you, which is a a deeper word here than the English word peace. The English word peace simply means the absence of conflict. So it's not invested with anything exciting. Does that make sense? Like when when we say peace, we're like, okay, the kids aren't fighting. That's that's good. You know what I'm talking about? or, you know, like when we yell at the kids. I don't. My wife does. Um, she's, she's sitting right here. You know, I just need some peace and quiet, right? I just need the absence of noise. Um, the word here that would have been spoken would have been shalom. And, it's, and what it means is flourishing, wholeness, goodness, the absence of conflict, but the presence of the way things ought to be. And so Jesus comes and gives this rich uh, blessing, shalom, And he says, peace be with you. Um, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus doesn't just rise from the dead so that we can jump up and down and get super excited and have a great experience. Jesus rose from the dead and and confirms his identity and and then through that sends the power of the Holy Spirit that we can join him in the work that he was about. That we, we don't stay where we're at. That we respond to this invitation. That we get to be sent. I, we all know that everybody talks about changing the world these days. It's every business, every corporation, every everything um, talks about changing the world these days or significance and meaning. And we can get annoyed with it, but I actually think it's great language. I think we have the image of God in us and when we see that there's possibility or that things could be better, that natural instinctive response to say, I want to be a part of changing the world, like that's a good thing, okay? Um, I think Jesus calls us to that. I'm sending you as I was sent. Just like I was sent, I'm sending you. And Jesus redeemed the world, reconciled the world. So I think there's this rich call. I think where we get it wrong is when we make it more about ourselves than, than the world, or when we make it more about ourselves than others. And so in that scenario, it's like, I would really like to be significant. So I want to do significant things so I can be significant. Or I want to change the world so I can be very heroic. Um, but then it really becomes about me, and it's no longer at that, at that point about joining the movement of God, 
uh, along with God's people that is from, through, and to God, to God be the glory. But it's really more about co-oping some of that so that I can have my own fill of meaning or significance. Does that, does that make sense? So we're, we're hopelessly lost kind of in this individualistic society. America, it's, I mean, there's just no denying it. We have, we have found ourselves to be radically focused on self, and we all, to some degree, struggle with it. Um, there was an article I saw two weeks ago that was talking about the links between selfies um, and, and social media and narcissism and psychology. You know, and it's, it's this over-focus on self. We all are, are living in it and struggling with it. But Jesus called us to his mission, being sent with his people. So there's something radically different about that. That I'm, it's not about me alone finding significance and changing the world. It's about me being a part of a team and, and together joining this work of God. And so by joining the life of Christ, it also means that I'm joining a community of people that are joining the life of Christ. That I'm joining the body of Christ that gets its direction from the head. And so there's something about this that's uh, fascinating when it relates to church or Christian community. Um, because the church has fallen on hard times these days. We all want to be spiritual um, but not, in some sense, religious, which is what church represents to a lot of people. And I was on the phone with a very well-known individual this week who's a lot younger than I am. And he was kind of lecturing me about the next generation. And, um, and, and he's very intuitive on his generation. And he says, we don't like to be told to tithe. Because we don't like that constraint. Because if you give less than 10%, you lose. If you only give 10%, well, you should have given more. And so, like, we just don't like that. We, we react against that. And we don't like going to, being told we got to go to church or be a part of a church. Because it's, the freedom is gone. And the sense of, um, like, the, inst the, the institutional value seems to get elevated. And we, we, we want to say, no, my connection with Jesus is organic. And I don't need this institution to mediate for me kind of thing. And I agree with all those points. But I just finally said, hey, I agree. But there's a pendulum swing. And, and those things we're talking about with kind of that generation, it's on another extreme. And, and extremes just aren't healthy. What about truth? Certainly we're not supposed to tithe out of the law. We're supposed to be generous people out of grace. That all that I have comes from God and that as I'm able, I can give my first fruits to the temple or, or to the church or the community. And I can give my last fruits, meaning the gleanings that are still on the field. Um, I can be generous with that for the poor or the needy or my neighbors. And, and I can live this kind of way. Sure, sure that comes from grace. Um, so we can't just get rid of it, though. Uh, and church... Yes, it can feel institutional at times, but the whole pendulum swing with this generation of why do I need church to grow in my relationship with Christ? I said, haven't you ever found this to be true? And he says, what? I said, that everybody that uses that argument, their relationship with Christ diminishes when they leave church. I mean, certainly I'm not going to be the one that says you have to in order to have a dynamic and growing relationship with Christ, but everybody that's ever used that argument on me that I don't need church I've watched their relationship with Christ diminish as they walk away. So I'm not trying to make it legalistic. I'm trying to say that the body of Christ is what God has created for us. And his plan includes it. 
And that as we come and, and work together or focus on these things collectively, there's something dynamic about that that helps me grow up uh, in my relationship with Christ. So it would be like this. It would be like saying, I don't need to go to school to get educated. I can do that on my own. Well, of course you can. But if you leave formal education, you tend to focus on other things and you lose the teacher, you lose the textbooks, you lose kind of the urgency of assignments, you lose the learning community. And all things being equal, you tend to end up um, not learning as fast or as much as when you were sitting in that environment. Does that make sense? And so there's something really communal and not individualistic about this idea of we understand God by joining in the life of Christ the mission of Christ as we are sent as he was sent. Um, There's an article this morning in, uh, on CNN. So I was waiting on the kids this morning and I went on CNN. And, and so this was a lead article on CNN and, and the article states, stop dressing so tacky for church. <laughs> and so it's a whole article saying, okay, everybody's going to dress up because it's Easter. But then after Easter, we're all going to go back to dressing tacky for church. And so the argument, and this writer cites a whole lot of people, the argument is, is that um, we don't value church as much because we're not dressing up as much. And there's two sides. They kind of give two different sides to this, this story. That the people that think that's a problem say Jesus used to, when he went into the temple, there was ritual washings and purification. And you don't just come willy-nilly or casually into the presence of God. Therefore, that should translate to us dressing better today's day and age. The other argument was, no, 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 it's more about the heart. Um, even Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands sometimes. And Jesus kind of pushing away the Pharisees saying, uh, don't get high-centered on that. And so that argument is like, it's really about uh, what is in your mind and in your heart with the identity of God and what your intentions are to do, not individualistically or consumer, uh, from a consumer standpoint, um, but as someone who's in submission and reverence to God. So there's two sides of these arguments. But it's interesting, one of these phrases that comes out uh, is saying that some churches have embraced a business-oriented, the customer is always right approach to worship that places individual comfort at the, uh, the center of the Sunday service. And it says that ultimately they're, they're being told that come as you are means that God's, uh, God wants you to be comfortable. They're being told that come as you are means that God wants you to, to be comfortable. So if the whole driving agenda is our experience, that it's a wonderful time, what's it a wonderful time uh, doing? Well, it's a wonderful time just being. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I found it satisfactory. Well, that's, that's great. Um, will you come back next year? Yeah, why? Well, because it was a wonderful, satisfactory time that I enjoyed experiencing and all things being equal, I'd rather experience that than something else. But... It can get very circular about my individualism and not, not say anything about I enjoyed it because somehow the Spirit of God was moving or somehow I felt challenged by the identity of Christ or somehow the resurrection and, and focusing on that or singing corporately or just seeing the little kids or seeing other people that were, were choosing to be at church, congregating together, that something about that stirred something in me. That's why I found it satisfactory. So there's a big difference here. And I, I was going to share a post from a friend, and then I got a text. I'm going to actually share both a post and a text. But one of my African-American friends um, wrote this yesterday. And he works with a lot of uh, under 
privileged communities and, and kids. And it was his frustration and venting. He says, for Easter Resurrection Sunday, some churches will parade donkeys down the aisles during extravagant worship services in neighborhoods where the average household income is 40K or 30K per year. We've turned the resurrection into a production and wonder why growing numbers of people call themselves spiritual but not religious. The resurrection is spiritual. Extravagant church is religious. And so when I see things like that, I'm like, yeah, just like Jim Gaffigan taught me. Like the logic doesn't add up. Um, and so then I got this text message this morning from someone that goes to Antioch uh, that's visiting family. And it says this, I'm in a nightmare Orange County mega church Easter service experience. <laughs> she sent a picture. And she says, the man on the corner of the stage is launching t-shirts out of a t-shirt cannon and, and, and launching beach balls into the crowd, dot, dot, dot. And oh, we're singing the Frozen soundtrack. Boy, do I miss Antioch this morning. Now, this isn't about, you know, who's better, who's, who's not good or whatever. What I'm trying to say is if, if Jesus is just a Socrates or a Gandhi to us, then what we're really trying to do is say, let's water it down to the lowest common denominator. Let's, let's not go beyond that at all and say anything controversial or anything that would really affect how I need to think through my life. Let's come at it um, in a way that we can all have a good experience and, and find unity that way. And what I'm saying is when we really lean into the identity of Christ, we find that he ultimately gets to say what his identity is. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you rally around that, you find unity with me and the Father. You find the way, the truth, and the life. And that... It's not just about a good experience, but about ultimate meaning, forgiveness, redemption, and a stroke of grace. So what we find when we really try and lean into this identity of Christ issue is that in Christianity, we know God by knowing Christ. We understand suffering and redemption through the crucifixion and resurrection. And we understand God by joining ultimately patterning our life, following in submission in the life of Christ. So in closing, I want to read something from Eugene Peterson. I, I love Eugene Peterson's writing, uh, writings. Um, he encourages us, he borrows Wendell Berry's phrase for one of his book titles, but he encourages us to think of resurrection differently. And as Wendell Berry had put it in his original poem, the phrase was, practice resurrection that we would be confronted by the identity of Christ, by the reality of the resurrection, that that would confront us, um, change us, mold us, encourage us, become the source of hope, and that our daily lives would, would be practicing what resurrection life could look like, should look like, as we lean into this love, because ultimately we have a king that thought it was better to die for his enemies than to punish him. And as we follow that king and join with that king, we get to live or imagine living so radically different than we sometimes do. This is entitled, He Sets Things Right. Peterson says, someone says, listen, God doesn't have time for your little problems. He is busy in the Middle East right now. He has bigger fish to fry. If you want something for yourself, you better get at it the best way you can. Buy this product and you will be important. 
Wear these clothes and everyone will realize just how distinguished you are. Read this book and the knowledge will set you a cut above the crowd. Take care of yourself. Now that sounds good and we begin to respond. And then we hear Paul's indignant comment, quote unquote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. From Galatians. Instinctively, immediately, we know that he, Paul, is right. The only good news that will make a difference is that the living God personally addresses and mercifully forgives us. He sets things right at the center. That is what we need, what we want. We determine that we will not abandon the free life of the gospel and live in the fantasy dreams that others paint for us and then sell to us for a fee. We will live forgiven and in faith, not as a parasite on others, but creatively for others. We will not mope or cringe or whine. We will praise and venture and make. And Father, we just thank you for sending your son. We celebrate forgiveness. We celebrate the opportunity to join and follow Christ as we live our lives trying to practice resurrection, knowing that someday our hope is secure. And we just thank you this morning again. In Christ's name, amen.